Welcome to Questions That Matter, a podcast of the C.S. Lewis Institute. I'm your host, Randy Newman, and I'm delighted to have with me today as my conversation partner, Dane Ortland. Dane is a publisher with uh, Crossway. He's also an editor for them and is also a writer. So he knows the writing process from many different angles, publishing, editing, writing. Uh, He also has a heart as a pastor. He's an elder at Naperville Presbyterian Church. And Dane has recently written a great book that will be the topic of our discussion today, Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. Dane, welcome to Questions That Matter. Thanks, Randy. Great to talk to you today. Well, Dane, this book really uh, is uh, such a great blessing for me personally and for many people that I know. Um, I want to tell our listeners, it begins with uh, a seemingly simple question. He's, uh, Dane writes at the very, very beginning, this is a book about the heart of Christ. Who is he? Who is he really? What is most natural to him? What ignites within him most immediately as he moves towards sinners and sufferers? What flows out most freely, most instinctively? Who is he? Now, I started reading that, and who is Christ? Well, of course, obviously, the first things that surface are theological answers. He's the second person of the Trinity. He's the Messiah, the one who fulfilled messianic prophecy, the one who died for my sins. But then, just a few pages later, you get to this point, the gospel offers us not only legal exoneration, it also sweeps us into Christ's very heart. I thought, oh, this is a book that I desperately need to read, probably several times. And then you write, um, you might know that Christ died and rose again on your behalf to, to rinse you clean from all your sin, but do you know his deepest heart for you? And I thought, I don't think so. And then Do you live with an awareness, not only of his atoning work for your sinfulness, but also of his longing heart amid your sinfulness? And it was at that point that I thought, okay, I'm reading this book at least twice. I'm going to read it through kind of quickly uh, to get the overview, the, the, the flow, the main arguments. And then I'm going to go back and read it very, very di- diligently, highlighting, underlining, journaling. Uh, this has been a great th- process for me. Uh, so, Dane, what, what was it that drew you to this topic? How, how did you come to write this book? Well, I didn't know of Christ's heart for me either, Randy, um, as you just put it so well. and. It was reading a little Puritan paperback. You know, Banner of Truth publishes these little Puritan paperbacks, they call them, by Thomas Goodwin. I didn't know anything about Thomas Goodwin, who lived 400 years ago in England. The title of the book was The Heart of Christ, a little longer title, The Heart of Christ, Who is in Heaven for Sinners Who Are on Earth. And though I had had classes in seminary on the person of Christ and on the work of Christ, uh, vital, wonderful classes. I never had a class on the heart of Christ. And yet Goodwin showed me, actually, it's right there in the Bible. And his heart for me, his heart for me is something deeper and more wondrous and more steady than what I realized. So I was just trying to say, uh, to, to pass on to 21st century fellow stragglers what Goodwin has been coaching me into over the last about seven years or so. Hmm. Well, so, and then um, 
and then since uh, reading Goodwin, reading some other Puritans, uh, in the process of writing this book, how how has this played out in your life, if I can put it that way? Yeah, that's a great question, Randy. Uh, it, and if it isn't playing out in my life, then what's the point? The point here is not simply to add doctrinal knowledge or awareness or grow intellectually or something like that, though that matters, <laughs> but actually for uh, the truths that we confess to seep into our heart and to make a difference. And um, uh, I, I just have not known that the Savior was so irresistible. Um, I am so glad, and I have been for decades, that the risen Lord Jesus uh, came into this world, lived the life that I couldn't live, died the death I deserved to buy, rose again triumphantly, that I am rinsed clean of all my sin, justified, acquitted, adopted, reconciled, redeemed. All of that is gloriously true, but that's all objective. That's all black and white. What subjectively, what, what does he actually feel? How does he actually feel towards me? Um, in my deepest darknesses, in the parts of my life where I feel most shame and regret, what about that? And what Goodwin and the Puritans and the Bible have shown me in recent years is that actually it's in my deepest regions of regret, shame, and anguish. That is where the heart of Christ is drawn out to me the most. And I did not know that about the Lord Jesus. So this has been a, a, a really a paradigm shift for me in my own life of discipleship. Mm. You know, I um, uh, not too long ago I was uh, speaking on uh, Paul's prayer in Ephesians three, mm. where he says uh, that he he prays that the Ephesians and us would be rooted and grounded in love. Mm -hmm. And as I was reflecting on that, I thought, you know, <clears throat> if I'm honest, I'm I'm rooted and grounded in truth. Huh. more than rooted and grounded in love. Now, I, now, both you and I, you say this in your book, I, I say it, I, I, I don't want to downplay truth. No. <laughs> Not at all, no. no. But um, for me, uh, I, I came from a Jewish background, and uh, for a Jewish person to believe in Jesus, we, we have to be really, really, really convinced that mm -hmm. Jesus really was the Messiah, that he really did fulfill those uh, verses in, in the Old Testament. Because we knew right from the start, we're going to get a whole lot of difficulty because of this. Yeah. So, so I was deeply rooted in truth, and I gravitated toward arguments of truth and theology of truth, which, which is great. Um, but, but what you point out is the Bible teaches very, very strongly, not, not just as a few little isolated places, very, very strongly, about the emotional compassion that our Savior has for us. Exactly. I, I'm right there with you, Randy. I have always in my life gravitated more towards uh, truth than love. It's my own defect. And, um, of course, as you just said, truth is su supremely important. I mean, falsehood sends us to hell. We need truth. But <laughs> if we... If we have truth and truth only, I mean, the Pharisees had a lot of truth. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, I, I think what is often so ugly to the world in the church is loveless truth. Mm -hmm. uh, the Lord Jesus, of course, he was not only, he said, I am the truth, to be sure, but also uh, he was a living picture. Uh, <laughs> Thomas Goodwin said, Christ is love covered over 
in flesh. Mm. So just as you mm. could imagine, you know, the Terminator being machine covered over in flesh, Jesus is love, co- love walking around on two legs on this planet. We actually have seen that in world history. Mm. Never was he sacrificing truth. Um, no moral compromise. Uh, no, no, uh, no theological funniness or fuzziness, but he was walking love. And that is what, I mean, uh, we need truth, but love is actually the beauty of the Christian life. Uh, it's what truth is the skeleton, but love is the, is the flesh. It's the beauty. And, um, so it is, it is that part of Jesus most centrally that this book is trying to dive into. Hmm. Well, I want to I want to explore this a little bit biblically, theologically. I also want to explore it maybe a little bit historically. Mm. Um, you say very early on that the the heart of your whole thesis of this book is uh, from Matthew eleven, where Jesus says, "Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Mm. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest." for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And you return to that verse throughout your book. Right. Um, so so speak to us a little bit about, about yeah. I mean, you can't unpack the whole thing for us, but just what are some of the things that, that uh, surfaced uh, most strongly for you as you were meditating on this verse and uh, writing about it? Thanks, Randy. You're so right. You can't unpack it in a couple of minutes. We can't unpack that with a lifetime of reflection on it. That is good. Randy, you and I, on our deathbeds, we will still be scratching the surface, unable mm. to plumb Matthew 11, 28, 29, and 30. And we can say that about so many texts. But this text, I mean, it is so wondrous. My dad pointed out to me something that Charles Spurgeon, the old British preacher, had pointed out to him, namely, in only one place in all four Gospels. I don't know how many chapters it is, 90 or so chapters of the Bible. It's a big chunk of the Bible. In only one place does Jesus Christ tell us what his own heart is. That's an astonishing thing because we learn a lot from the Lord Jesus about who he liked to hang out with, who he ate lunch with, the kinds of uh, his theology, how he understood himself to fulfill the Old Testament, what he thought about the law, how he interacted with the Pharisees and Sadducees, so much. But in only one place does he stop, as Spurgeon points out, and sort of open himself up and say, hey, do you all want to know what really most deeply and centrally gets me out of bed in the morning? Because, of course, when he says gentle and lowly in heart, as you know, the heart in the Bible is not just the emotions. It's not less than that. But the heart in Old Testament and New is the animating center to everything you do. It's what motivates you through life. It's what you're daydreaming about as you drift off to sleep. It's why you do what you do, why you are who you are. And Jesus said that the the, the central animating headquarters to his own inner life was gentleness and lowliness. That is, if I, if I didn't have that passage in the Bible and someone asked me, hey, what do you think, take two words from the entire, of, in all the world, two words, what do you think Jesus says his own heart is? I would not instinctively pick those. Mm, right. And yeah. Where, where, would you, where would you go instead? I think I know oh, the I, Well, I, I know enough not to say wrathful and vindictive. 
though okay. Jesus is a a God man of just wrath, to be sure, I might say something like he is uh, he is joyful and magnanimous, or he is loving and merciful. And those things are true, Randy. You and I believe that with all our heart. But when he says what his heart is, he says this strange thing, I am gentle and lowly. <laughs> That's just worth a lifetime of reflection. It's worth a book. Uh, maybe several books. <laughs> maybe <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, so um, why, do, why do you suppose we are resistant to this? Because I, I don't think it's just that we're ignorant of it. Right. I think we're resistant to it. Why, uh, why do you think that is? Wow. Well, I, uh, who knows? I mean, maybe some, some reasons are the battles of church history have taught us to be very vigilant um, in uh, to be orthodox Christologically with a high and glorious and lofty and supreme Christ, who is the ruler, the king, God over all. We believe all that. But it is, I think there's something more intuitive, actually, about uh, subscribing to that, that, that same one, the resplendent one, you know, the Revelation 1 Christ, who has a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth and his his hair is like, white wool and his face is like the blazing sun and so on, that that Christ, that his heart is gentle and lowly. That's surprising. Uh, I think another reason could be it might not feel at, uh, sufficiently morally serious to us for him to be gentle and lowly towards sinners and sufferers. We might say, whoa, hang on a second here. Is there something kind of morally flabby going on here? Um and I think another reason is we just way down deep in our hearts, Randy. I don't think we, um, I think we harbor dark thoughts of God, and it is it takes a lifetime and more to root them out. We can be believers, but we still tend to think of God as parsimonious. In other words, as him doling out his grace uh, epically, and um, so we just have bad theology it, proper. We don't think right thoughts of God and of Christ. We, uh, and so we need to be corrected by texts such as this. Yeah. You know, I think also, um, um, uh, there, there, you, you've mentioned some things about history, uh, yeah. in the early 20th century, you know, we, oh, there's right. this big split between fundamentalists and modernists yeah. and, um, the modernists didn't just downplay God's wrath. Um, they, they denied it. They, they said that that's not really biblical teaching. And right. so they, so they, so they, they, they denied that and they only emphasized Christ's love and yes. God's compassion. Yeah. And so I think the fundamentalists and evangelicals and those of us who are orthodox in our theology, we, we have this, this cloud hanging over of, oh, I don't, I don't want to fall into that trap that the 1920s right. liberals fell into. Yes. Yes. So if anything, I want to, you know, overemphasize holiness and, and truth. Right. Um, but what you point out in your book is, um, Scripture teaches both of those, and if anything, it might be weighted on the side of this gentleness and lowly. Is that right? Am I reading you correctly? I love what you're saying, and I think it's a great insight about what was happening 100 years ago in the church, Randy. Really well said. And um, yeah, exactly. Uh, and what I would want to say is um, let's push really hard on the texts about divine wrath. Let's not 
uh, avoid those or ignore those or dilute those. But I think what the Puritans would say, what I would want to say is, um, if you dilute divine wrath, actually, you are undermining the divine love, which you think you are thereby highlighting. Hmm. It's both or neither. We need to, it, in other words, it's not like wrath is going off of one end of the spectrum and uh, gentleness and mercy and love off the other end. And we want to split the difference, but rather we want to push hard in both directions. And I, I can't escape as I read the Bible, just what you just said, namely that uh, while there is this snowballing tension throughout the Old Testament of wrath, mercy, wrath, mercy at the cross, mercy won out. Wrath was fully vindicated, 100%. Uh, Sin was judged. This is not morally unserious. But actually, uh, um, mercy won out. And that actually is true even to the Old Testament in a place where God says that, that he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. In other words, there's if we talk about God's heart, his innermost core, um, what pours out most naturally from him is compassion and pity. That is who he most deeply is. We'll return to my conversation in just a moment. Uh, I do want to invite you to take a look at our website, cslewisinstitute.org, and avail yourself to the many resources that we have there. Uh, we have fo- over 40 years worth of articles and recordings and events that can be tremendously helpful. Uh, check out the uh, different ways that we can help you share your faith or grow deeply in your faith. And uh, consider also uh, supporting the Institute. If you click on the button that says Donate, uh, we would love to have you as a ministry partner. Now let's return to the conversation. You know, I love what you wrote at one point about this whole thing, about getting sort of the, 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 the both of those. Uh, you said, uh, um, if there appears to be some sense of disproportion in the Bible's portrait of Christ, then let us be accordingly... Uh, disproportionate. <laughs> Better to be biblical than artificially balanced. And you put balanced in quotes. And uh, that is such a challenging thought. You know, we we don't right. we don't want to just be balanced. We don't want to, you know, say this and say this. We want to have the proportion right as well as the different component parts. Yeah, exactly right. And I mean, I, I think as new as born again believers. There's something in us, and maybe this is overgeneralizing, brother. I think there's something in us where we we understand that we are sinners, uh, not as deeply as we should, but we we feel that we feel the, the, our guilt and shame. Um, but there's something in us that that resists um, the flood-like nature of God's mercy abounding. The Bible says not being doled out, but abounding to us. And uh, so, so I think the, the Bible just wants to take, wants us to take our conscience by the scruff of the neck and say, do, do you not realize most deeply who I am? And yes, you are sinful, but let the Bible emphasize what it is emphasizing for, those, for the penitent, for those who come to God by faith, and let yourself be enveloped in this love, that's really, really hard to do, and uh, but I, I think we're freed to do that in the scripture. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, it does strike me, and I thought this a number of times reading in your book, um, we get a lot of commandments and exhortations in Scripture to shape the way we think. We're, we're, we're told in a lot of places, you know, uh, set your mind on, fix your mind on. Right. Uh, there's so many places where in the Psalms, the psalmist is talking to himself. Yes. Um, we're, we're, we're told to consider yourself dead to sin, consider yourself this way, think about this way. If, if, if there's anything that is true or honorable or right, let your mind think on these things. Yes. Well, we're not naturally prone to think these things. No. And so we really have to work at re-channeling uh, the, the, the very uh, ways we think, not, right. not just what we think, but the very ways we think. Oh, I so agree. I mean, it, it's not as if, in other words, we, we, we hear the gospel once or we, we read Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 once, and then it's downloaded. And now we just have it. It's there. And it's, it's just humming along at a hundred percent at our mind and heart and no, rather we go through life up and down, all over the place. Uh, we're doing well. We're doing awful. We, this is why every morning we're getting up and reading the Bible again to remember this again. In a sense, almost become a Christian all over again. It's why we go to church on Sunday mornings to hear it again, to be immersed in it again. And as you said so rightly, to shape our mind and our heart in this direction, because otherwise, I mean, Randy, if I leave my heart and mind in neutral then I will slide inevitably, even if imperceptibly, towards dark thoughts of God. So I strongly agree with you. You know, um, I, I do have to tell you, when you just said, um, you know, we download the information and it's in there. Hmm. I, I really wish that was true. <laughs> right. I, no, it just, that just sounds a whole lot better. It's it like, uh, okay, better. just... You know, just kind of like uh, get it onto the front screen or something. I don't know. Um, um, let me let me tell you a story about this verse um, uh, that you're building your whole book on. Um, you may know I I did a whole lot of um, research on how people be how, how people become Christians, right. and I interviewed forty or fifty college students and listened to their testimonies pretty extensively to listen. Uh, you know what what are the things that they report in you know how they became a Christian. And there was this one young woman who told me um, when she was in high school, she realized she didn't have the kind of grades that was going to get her into the colleges that she wanted to. So her guidance counselor said, you really need to uh, join a lot of clubs and get a lot of extracurricular activities on your college application. So she joined everything she could think of. You know, she was a cheerleader. She was right. on this team. She was in this club. She just joined everything. And it worked. She got into her first choice college, which was great. And then she got to college and she thought, well, in four years, I'm going to need a resume. I'm going to need to get a job. So I probably need to join a lot of these same activities because, mm. you know, I, I'm, I'm going to need more than good grades. So she joined right. this club and this club and this team. And she was, you know, she was in so many different clubs and she was not a, a Christian. She, she didn't come from any kind of religious home. She said she didn't remember ever going to church, maybe only once her whole entire life before coming to college. Um, somebody down the hall from where she lived invited her to a Christian organization to meeting on campus. And she thought, 
well, that would look good on the resume. Sure, I'll go. And so she goes and she just thinks it's the weirdest thing in the world. She just, you know, people are raising their hands, closing their eyes, singing these weird songs. And (laughs) some guy got up front and talked for 30 minutes about she doesn't even remember. I mean, it just was weird. But at the end of the meeting, they were having announcements about different kind of events. And somebody got up and made an announcement. And again, she doesn't remember what the announcement was for. But the person who read, uh, who was making the announcement, I, I guess it was an announcement for some sort of uh, social activity. And the, the the selling point was you all need to take a break from studying. And so this person announced, because um, as you know, in the Bible, it says, come to me, all who are labor and heavy laden, wow. and I will give you rest. Wow. And she hears the word rest. And wow. she said, did someone just say rest? Wow. I'm exhausted. Yeah. I, I, how do you get this rest stuff? Right. And, um, and so they passed around this sign-up sheet for people who wanted to join a Bible study. And she thought, well, maybe that's where I learned about this rest stuff. Oh, wow. wow. <laughs> Isn't that great? Oh, I love and it. she became a Christian like, like a month later. Um, uh, so what drew her to the gospel was this offer of rest. Wow. I, I love that. Uh, I love that, Randy. And it's not, I mean, she was doubtless not just talking about physical rest, though that is an, an element of it, an important side of it. But something inside of us, you know, the RPMs needing to come to a, a standstill so we can be human again. I just love that. Well, there is a whole lot more to the story, and I, I, I don't necessarily want to go into it. But the more I heard about her background, the more she was desperate for rest huh. on a deep, deep spiritual, emotional level. Wow. So, um, uh, so that's what the gospel brings to people. Mm-hmm. Um, it brings salvation and forgiveness and all those many, many blessings, but it also brings people a kind of oh, an exhale of a rest because uh, Jesus is gentle uh, right. towards us. Right, right, and not and not only just a uh, a gospel that gets us into Christianity at conversion and then gets us into heaven at death, but all the way in between a savior who's walking with us and actually providing moment by moment rest. I'm constantly going through my life, stiff arming it, ignoring it, uh, sidelining it, um, saying, no, I want to go my own way. But but this savior who offers us rest all through life long, just what that young lady was, was so deeply desiring, which we all in our own way are, uh, that is a wondrous reality of the gospel. Well, and, and let me let me uh, bring in. There is one one of your chapters was just focusing in on that Jesus is now interceding for us right. in heaven. Right. And I, I think you know we all learn that fairly early on. We know that uh, you know we know those verses, but you you drew it out so that I, I've started thinking in terms of at, at, at various moments in my day, Jesus is praying for me right now. Right. Um, uh, when I was sitting and uh, having a conversation with a friend not too long ago, I told him that. I said, oh. you know, um, I mean, this is really fun. We're having a fun conversation. We're talking about serious things. We're talking about f- funny things. We're laughing. We're, we're you know, interacting. But but there's there's a whole new sense of... Isn't it wonderful that our Savior is interceding for us right here, right now, about this conversation? Wow. It just it just adds a a beauty to every single moment. I I don't want to say it it adds a heaviness or weightiness. I mean, I to a certain extent it does, but it's more of a 
Oh, this is this is a this is a a, a beautiful love infused moment. Mm. I love that. Reflecting his ongoing care for us. Yeah, I mean, I have for most of my life, I've tended to think about the work of Christ as something in the past. And that's gloriously true. The work on mm-hmm. his life, birth, life, ministry, death, resurrection, and even ascension, though we don't talk much about that. But that's everything he was doing back then. What is he doing right now? Actually, as he just said, the New Testament tells us in Romans 8 and Hebrews 7 and 1 John 2, he's interceding for us. That is, that's a neglected doctrine, Randy. We don't talk about it. And it's, we're the poorer for it. We, meet, we can draw strength from this. This, mm-hmm. is, this is, you know, a com- comforting and consoling thing. And as you just said, it does infuse life with beauty and, uh, and fullness. So, yeah, amen. Um, well, I want to I want to touch upon uh, the Puritans because you mentioned them quite a few times in your book. You quote from quite a few, but particularly this Thomas Goodwin. I, I have to be honest when when you were quoting them, I thought, oh, this is Dane Ortland, the Puritan lover. He must just read the Puritans all the time. Um, but you just told me earlier on in, in this interview that that you'd never even heard of Thomas Goodwin or hadn't read his stuff. So, um, so which is true? Are you are you the do you read tons of Puritans? Uh, is this a new thing? Is this uh, and uh, you probably can tell in my voice. I, I think some people are scared off by this. Read the Puritans. It's, 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 it's like that sounds like like you know, just, I don't know, strong medication or something. <laughs> well, let me tell you, brother, they are strong medication, um, but they're not the bad pacing kind. No, I did not. I did not really read the Puritans at all until about seven or eight years ago. And uh, and a friend of mine put me on to Thomas Goodwin, and the <laughs> the pattern I've sort of fallen into here is in the morning I read my Bible, a uh, little Old Testament, little New Testament, and then I read a page or two of a Puritan, whatever I happen to be working through at the moment, Bunyan or Sibs or Owen or Goodwin or whomever, and uh, it's just been a nice little, very 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 small doses of uh, that strong medicine, and. Um, uh, I was talking to someone at church a few weeks ago, and they made a comment about how the Puritans are so off-putting because they're all about judgment. I wanted to pull my hair out. Yes, they believe in judgment. It Judgment is in the Bible. But the Puritans understood that the Bible has something most deeply to tell us about God's heart. Goodwin and Bunyan and Sibs in particular got that. And it pervades their writing, especially Goodwin. And um, uh, you, we, we should be intimidated by... 28-year-olds today writing dissertations for a PhD on the Puritans, we should not be intimidated by the Puritans themselves. If you just try, if you just crack it open, most of their works, they're just sermons to farmers and merchants and, uh, you know, to ordinary people like us. So uh, there's riches there. Have you ever wondered what heaven is going to be like? What will it look like? What will we do there? We all have questions about heaven, and uh, we, the C.S. Lewis Institute, are delighted to invite Dr. Randy Alcorn, who has spent decades, literally, uh, researching the topic. He's written uh, award-winning books on the topic, and he's going to be presenting a live stream event for us uh, through the C.S. Lewis website on January 22nd at 8 p.m. 
uh, please check out the website www.cslewisinstitute.org and find out the details about the Randy Alcorn event. I think it'll be really great. Okay, that's good. So, um, so where would where would you suggest people begin? What would um, I mean? You just mentioned Sibs mm. and Bunyan and uh, Goodwin. Mm. Um, you have any specific works you'd recommend, or oh, oh well, let me start there. Yeah, definitely. Um, Richard Sibs was one of the the earlier Puritans. He was about a generation older than Goodwin. Actually, he was instrumental in Goodwin. Um, coming into learning of the heart of Christ. But Sibs wrote a little book called uh, The Bruised Reed. Um, and it's a, a, a picking up Matthew 12, I think, which is quoting Isaiah about a bruised reed he will not break. And that is a text there and a book accordingly written on the text, which is basically telling uh, a straggling pain uh, pain-experiencing Christians, Jesus does not come to you and tell you to dig deeper, try harder. He comes to you and he puts his arm around you and he lifts your face by the chin and he looks you in the eye and he says, let's do this together. Uh, you belong to me. And uh, a bruised reed he will not break. That's not a hard book, Randy, for anyone to read. A 16-year-old over a weekend can work through that book quite easily. So um, that would be a great place to start. Good. Oh, this is good. Um, there are, I, I've seen some, <laughs> I'm embarrassed to admit this. Uh, I've seen some collections, you know, like a, yeah. a day by day with the Puritans or yeah. select readings from the Puritans. I've, I've bought several of these books when I go to conferences and stuff. And I think I, I should read these books. And there, there they are. I'm looking at them right now on my bookshelf. <laughs> they are in excellent condition because I've, <laughs> I've just not really read them. Um, yeah. Are there some collections that you think are a good way to go about it? Or would you recommend just pick one writer and dig into them. You know, those, those collections have value and they give us bite-sized portions, but I'm with you. I, though I, I think I've purchased one or two over the years, I don't actually stick with them. And I think one reason is I'm, I'm not motivated because I don't have any context. Day by day, I'm being given this nugget without the broader context. Whereas if you pick up Sibs, The Bruised Reed, or Goodwin, The Heart of Christ, or uh, Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, or... Um, uh, John Owen, uh, Communion with God, a little longer, but equally uh, warm-hearted and devotional. Um, you get a certain building, escalating argument, uh, argument in the positive use of that word, and uh, you get the whole context, and you don't have to read a lot. As I say, I read like one page a day or two pages. Just take it in small doses, you know, and... Um, uh, and uh, it's it's wonderful to do it in that way. So if people want to do the you know 365 daily readings method, hey, do it. Just do something to get exposed to these guys and deconstruct the stereotype that most of us grow up with of the Puritans. Now, um, this is very helpful to me because I I think uh, I have tried to read those, and I think I suffered exactly what you were saying in that. Uh, they don't have the context. Right. And so a good way to get into this more would be pick one book and read it slowly and, and feel the 
the the depth of the argument or the there it's really I, I find that it's the depth of the meditation. They pick right. well, like you said, I mean the, the bruised reed. It just takes that one theme yeah. and uh, dwells on it over and over, which also is a nice a really great model and example for us about how we should meditatively think about God meditating on God's word. Oh, I, I so um, agree, Randy. Yeah, I so agree. I mean, uh, we, we read so quickly often, don't we? And it just skates over the surface. I mean, what the Puritans were doing with these books is they were taking one verse, one verse, and wringing it dry. And mm-hmm. 300 pages later or 200 pages later, off go their results to the publisher. Um so they're just taking this one diamond of a verse and looking at it from every angle. And I agree, it's a wonderful example and exercise in just meditating on a single truth, a single verse. Well, and, and I think you were shaped by them perhaps even more than you realize, because mm-hmm. I think your book is a, right. a an extended meditation on Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30. True. So, um well, we could talk a whole ton more, but I, I uh, we, we need to draw this to a close, um, mostly because I, I, I don't want to just keep quoting from your book. I, I really want people to read this book and read it the way you've you've said to read the whole thing. It's not a very long book at all. No. Um, but but um, when I said to you, when I started reading it, I said, okay, I'm going to read this at least twice. And I'm going to read it once through just to get the overall uh, flow. And I found very quickly, oh, I, I can't read this book quickly. Uh-huh. It's not that kind of book. It's read a chapter and then chew on it for a couple of days and, and look in different places in your life of uh, what, is it, what does it mean that Christ is interceding for me right now? What does it mean that he's my advocate um, at this very second, in this very moment? So you've, you've provided a great resource for us. And um, I'm delighted to hear that this wasn't just wasn't even uh, uh, just an academic exercise for you. This is this was really a report of how these truths have made such a powerful effect on your own life. So, is there anything else you want to add before we uh, bring this to a close? Oh, thank you, brother, for your your support and encouragement. Um, I don't think much. I just would love to grow myself, Randy, into this direction of gentleness and tenderness and lowliness as a father, as a husband, as a Christian, as a colleague, as a worker. Um, you know, gentleness can feel, can't it, very ineffective and unfruitful and weak? But actually, when we are gentle, we are aligning with the Savior and with his own heart. And uh, when I see gentleness, I find it irrepress- repressibly attractive and uh, magnetic. So um, uh, I just would like to be more like that myself. And I think the only way I get there is by communing with, fellowshipping with, being loved by a Savior who's like that. So thanks, Randy, for talking with me about it. Oh, this has been great. Dane Ortland, thank you so much for being a guest, a conversation partner here on Questions That Matter. Uh, Listeners, I hope that you will uh, check out Dane's book, Gentle and Lowly, and I hope you'll also visit uh, our website, cslewisinstitute.org. Check out our other uh, resources that are very helpful for you as you seek to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind.